0: So we've been uh, looking at heroes from the Bible. We're looking specifically at the book of Genesis. Last week, we talked about Abraham, and we looked at this verse in particular in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others, right? So there's the idea. God is not just interested in the people who have already said, I'm going to follow you. He wants us to in turn bless other people, to create uh, guideposts so that everyone would turn to him. So God says to Abraham, you're blessed to be a blessing. But let's, let's kind of bring that into modern language. God says to Abraham, you're loved in order to love. You're healed in order to be healers. You are, like, there's space made for you so that you can make space for other people, right? You're, you're blessed to be a blessing. You, you're shown grace so that you might show other people grace. You are forgiven so that you might forgive others. This is, like, the main headline of not just this series, not just the book of Genesis, but it, it, it's a theme that gets carried out throughout the rest of the Bible. God says, I will bless you. But it's not a blessing that's meant to be hoarded. It's a blessing that's meant to be given away. You are blessed to be a blessing. So we're looking at specific stories here in Genesis. And stories are powerful. That's one of the reasons why in August we're going to do our summer reading series uh, following stories that C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia. But stories are powerful because they are windows into our humanity but they're also shapers of our identity. So as we read these stories, notice how these are not just stories about old dead people uh, that have nothing to do with you or with me. The things that they're facing, the things that they're processing, the lives that they're living actually uh, give us windows into our own selves. But more than that, they, they shape our identity. Like it's actually, and there's like lots of research to show this, the stories that get told, Shape not just how who you identify with, but shape who you are. So, like, there's American stories about you know George Washington and his wooden teeth, and there's Johnny Appleseed, and there you know there's there's the rags to stories of Ben Franklin. Like, that's part of what forms our nation's identity. So, these stories in particular are the stories that form, I suppose, our Christian identity. So, don't um, underestimate the power of story. Last week we said we talked about Abraham. This week we're talking about Sarah or she starts out as Sarai. We'll just call her Sarah. But in talking about Sarah, we're faced with something that is difficult to wrestle with. It's a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow. And here's just the truth. Here's the fact of it. Women are underrepresented in the Bible. That is the truth. And it makes sense, I think, if you realize that the Bible didn't come down to us from heaven. God didn't, like, etch with lightning into stone tablets, except for that one time with the the Ten Commandments. But, like, most of the Bible comes to us through a historical time and place. Like, we believe that God inspired the Bible, but he inspired specific people with specific worldviews in specific cultures. So the reality is is that for most of history, men have held the power roles. And that sucks. It doesn't mean, though, that women haven't played equal or had equal influence in the course of the world. It just means that men have taken most of the credit, I think. Is that fair to say? So while there is an inequality and representation in the Bible, right? Like there's Most of the heroes we read about are men. The thing to know is that in the Bible, women have equality in their gifting, they are equally spirit-filled, they are equally valuable, and they are equally called. What do I mean by spirit-filled, first of all? Uh, Spirit-filled means like they have that same presence of God in them that flows out into their lives. Like God is with women in the same way that he's with men. In fact, uh, in the New Testament, one of the guys who wrote a large portion of the New Testament, Paul says, before God, there's actually no difference, right? You can be Jew or Greek or American or Mexican or Arab and there's no difference in your standing before God. But he also says you can be male or female and before God, he looks at you the same. I'm not saying that there's no differences in like Your biology, of course there are. But like in standing before God, there's no inequality. Here's what I mean by calling. What you find in the Bible is that everything men do, women also do. There are fewer examples of it. And again, I think that's largely historical. But you find women who lead. You find women who prophesy. You find women who command armies and they teach and they apostle, whatever that means, and they deacon but you know, that's like a, an official kind of churchy title for a certain type of leader in the church. The, the people who deal with money and serving the poor, they are part of Jesus' inner circle. In fact, it is women who show up at the grave first to find that the tomb is empty and Jesus had risen from the dead. It is the women who are as loyal or in some ways more loyal to Jesus through his crucifixion and his death. So, Let's look at Sarah, kind of in the big, the big picture of things. When you look at the legacy of Sarah, you find out a few things about her. She is ambitious. She is assertive. Uh, in fact, there's one time where, where Sarah tells Abraham to do something, and Abraham is resistant to follow Sarah's advice. So then God speaks to Abraham directly and says, this is a bit of a paraphrase, but it's really close. Listen to your wife. And God has been saying that to men ever since, uh, if you have ears to hear it. But uh, one of Sarah's legacies, and this gets passed down, like, Abraham and Sarah lived like 2000-ish BC. This gets, uh, one of her reputations that comes up in the New Testament is that Sarah respected her husband. Like, this is part of her legacy. Like, she's not an angry feminist, and I I don't, that's like a dangerous thing for me to say, okay? I'm not like pro or anti-feminist, but like, I I don't like... particularly enjoy angry feminists, okay? But like, she has respect for men, she has respect for her husband, and that's part of her legacy. But finally, Sarah is flawed. And she's not more or less flawed than Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of the other men in the Bible. Like, take Jesus, Jesus actually was not flawed, so take Jesus out of it. But like, she is flawed, just as the men are flawed. In fact, uh, what we'll find out today, like Sarah's response to God and the promise God made is actually the same response that Abraham had a chapter earlier. And that's difficult for us to swallow. And I don't know what it is about our culture right now, but I, it could be, I think, that our culture is bereft of grace. Sorry, every once in a while I go into Lord of the Rings English like bereft. like there's no grace in our culture. Like there's this weird contradiction that we, we will say like there's no right and wrong and we're relativist and you do what seems good to you, but then we just judge the heck out of people. And I don't mean Christians, I mean like the culture. Um, I was sitting in a doctor's office right after, oh sorry, that, that character who plays Aunt Becky in Full House uh, what's her name? Yeah, Lachlan. And like the way that like, she made a mistake and she's being prosecuted for that mistake. But the slime that the culture has thrown at her for this mistake, I mean, it's just like we love people and then we hate them. We, we find their flaw and suddenly everything they've ever done doesn't count for anything. Like, it's on Facebook, it's in the magazines, it's on TV. Like, I remember, so in my childhood, it like, do you remember Britney Spears? Man, we loved Britney Spears. And then we'd shoot her up and we'd spit her out. Like, we have not been nice to this person. Like, this person. Like, I, my mom probably didn't like that, you know, I wanted to watch MTV to, to watch the Britney Spears music videos. But like, she, didn't, she doesn't deserve the kind of slime that's been thrown at her. Like, I think our culture cannot deal with flawed people. As soon as we find the flaw, we, we knock them down and we trample on them. And I, I want you to see that, like, Sarah is flawed, but that's actually, it's just the same as everybody else in the Bible, and it's the same as you. And what we find in the heroes of the Bible is that they all have flaws, and God actually uses them sometimes because of their flaws. Because God wants everyone to know, like, it's not because the people are so great, it's because God is so great. Like, he can use flawed people. He shows grace to flawed people. Okay, so, with Sarah. Remembering that stories are windows in our humanity and shapers of our identity. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 19. And commentators agree, and I, uh, I don't know that this is common Uh, in like Christian belief. But this is actually a story where God doesn't show up to speak to Abraham. This is a story where God is speaking to Sarah uh, through the tent. And what happens is there are three visitors that show up at the tent of Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham is like sitting out in the shade in in the front of his tent and these three visitors come up. And at the beginning of the story, it's very ambiguous as to who these people are or what these people are. They're simply called visitors. But as, as the story unfolds, Abraham invites them in to host them and says to Sarah, like, get some food ready, okay? Um, we're going to take care of these visitors. And so they're sitting down, and it says in verse 8, when the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat and served it to these men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. So again, here's where the visitors make it about Sarah. Where is Sarah, your wife? She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children, so she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is so old? And then the Lord said to Abraham, and this is where suddenly we realize these aren't just three visitors, this is God himself who has come to visit. Again, not just to visit Abraham, in this case specifically, God comes to visit Sarah, But God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can old women like me have babies? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did. (laughs) So you jump jump to uh, chapter 21, right? And it says, the Lord kept his word. And did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac, which by the way means laughter. And eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. And Abraham was 100 years old when this happened. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. So the headline here is that God turns Sarah's cynical laughter into joyous laughter. That's the headline. But let's uh, let's look back at that one verse where it says, So Sarah laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is so old? Now, this is her cynical laughter. You guys know what cynicism means? I'd like to hear some of your definitions. Just like raise your hand and give me some definitions, some of your definitions of cynicism. Uh, what was that? When you, when you don't believe something. Good, Jeff. Snide remarks, Right. Yeah. Skeptical. Skeptical. You you meet everything with skepticism, not just like skeptical about one thing, but kind of like this. It's it's pervaded your heart. Yeah. snappy. Snappy remarks. I like that snappy. Yeah, Marika. There's this idea of pessimism or negativity where, where everything you see is just like it's gotta be bad. Like there's like a level of distrust toward everything if you're like a deeply cynical person. Let me, uh, let me try to add this definition to it. Cynicism, when your misery and your shame cause you to mock or create intellectual defense mechanisms against hope. This is actually what Sarah does. So look back at that, that passage. It says, so Sarah laughed silently to herself, right? She's, she's like kind of mocking the idea of being pregnant in her old age. Here's the shame though. How could a worn out woman like me She's saying, I'm not worth anything anymore. How could an old woman, well, an old worn-out woman like me, here's the misery, enjoy such pleasure? So the commentators agree on this. And I don't know why this is like, uh, was, was news to me, but th- this idea of pleasure isn't the pleasure of like, I'm going to have a baby, which is like, not a pleasurable experience, <laughs> necessarily. Uh, I, I mean, ne- not. It's not. <laughs> It was, it was good for me. I mean, Allison had an epidural when we had our kid. It was good for me. But uh, the, this is like sexual pleasure. Like, this is, this is describing the kind of misery of, like, an old, worn-out, sexless marriage. Like, what do you mean I'm going to have a baby? I don't even find pleasure in sex anymore. Like, don't talk to me about having children. Like, we're, you know, we're in a bad place, like... We've been married, I mean, they've been married a long time at this point. They've been married like 70, 80 years. And it wasn't, one, you know, it doesn't seem like things went particularly well for them. Uh, because the hope of having children, the, the idea was that when God said to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make your name great, it's like I will make you into this great nation. Like your children are going to have children and it's going to become this, this light to the world where all the nations are blessed because of your many descendants. And Sarah had, over decades, lost hope in that, and I think had become miserable. And here's the, uh, here's the kind of intellectual defense, especially when my master, my husband, is so old. So a lot of us know uh, cynical people, and maybe, maybe just to use a couple of examples, like there, there are some people who are unemployed who are hopeful, right? They're like, I'm looking for a job, and I'm going to find a new job. But like, There are some people who, after they've been turned down once or twice, they turn cynical. And the cynicism takes on both a mocking and a, quote, philosophical kind of dimension to it. So if if you've turned cynical, maybe because you've been turned down in your search for a job, you can get to the point where you think, oh, what a bunch of suckers who work, right? Like, why would you work? Like, my life is good. I can play, you know, whatever. Like, you guys are working for the man. Have you heard this? Like, if, if you're... If you have a friend who's unemployed, you know, he, they don't want to work because, you know, you guys are all working for the man. Who wants to do that? But there's, there's this, you know, it, it, it becomes this shield, right, for deep pain that's come in. Because, the, because of the shame, the feeling that they're not worthy of work, perhaps, but also because of the misery. Like, most people, nobody wants to be living in their parents' basement when they're 30, like that's not that's not goals for your life, but a lot of people do and and it's become like a cynical thing where where it's etched into our heart and this is like this is Sarah's story, but remember Sarah's story is a window into our soul like there's cynicism out there, but there's also cynicism in here cynicism takes an easy route, and I was listening to a TED Talk by a professor from UC Davis, and she talked about the, the power of negativity and actually how, like, there's, there's, a, there's a current toward negativity somehow in our souls. Like, there's something broken in us so that, like, we tend toward negativity. It's like when I was, uh, I, I was at the beach in Rehoboth with my brother who came to visit. I don't know if it was last week or the week before. The weather was all right, but the water was cold. But he's from Minnesota, so he doesn't get many op- opportunities to swim in the ocean. So he, j- he goes into the ocean, and I say, ha, have fun with that. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of put my big toe in and I thought, no, this is like icy. Anyway, this is kind of getting off the subject. Uh, my, uh, long story short is my, I realized that at, my ankles went numb after a while, and then it wasn't painful, so I went into the water with him. But uh, <laughs> then, we, not too long, because I feel like early onset, Hypothermia was starting to take root. Like, I didn't feel so good after about 15 minutes. But uh, anyway, if, if you're in the ocean, there's, there's a current, or like the way the waves are, are, ta- are, are breaking will pull you a certain way. So there was like a no swimming zone. And if we, if we stood still, we would get taken to that no swimming zone because there's like those docks, or they're not docks, they look like I don't know what they are. You know what I'm talking about at Rehoboth Beach? They're like, pipes, they're levees, jetties, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. I... Is that like sewer? Huh? Erosion oh, erosion control. That's great. Well, that's, that's another great example of if you just put it on autopilot, the beach erodes. But anyway, uh, we actually had to swim to the left to even stay put. And that, that's, that's how it works with cynicism too. Like you have to swim toward hope or else cynicism will take root. And that, that's what happened to Sarah. But God doesn't uh, condemn Sarah's cynicism. He, he mirrors it. She, he calls her out on it, but he doesn't condemn her. And, you know, she's embarrassed when God calls her out, so then she denies it, and God, like, says again, no, like, you don't understand. I, I hear things. I hear all things. <laughs> right? I, I heard you. Uh, but God turns... Sarah's cynical laughter into joyful laughter, and I think that's actually, that's what he wants to do for all of us. I want to turn now to a, a quote from Brené Brown, though, who's nationally a, you know, a New York Times bestselling author, author. She does shame research as a sociologist, but she talks a little bit about cynicism in her book called Dare to Lead, and this, this links up to some of the definitions that you were using. She says, cynicism and sarcasm are first cousins who hang out in the cheap seats, right? Uh, the cheap seats are like, they're not, they're not engaged, they're not paying, they can kind of like from from 10,000 feet, you know, just have an attitude of, I'm not going to be involved, but I'm going to criticize, right? But don't underestimate them. They often leave a trail of hurt feelings, anger, confusion, and resentment in their wake, right? There's the danger of cynicism and the danger that cynicism can do or uh, accomplish if, it, if we let it take control. If we don't Let me say that a little stronger. If we don't combat cynicism in our hearts, we will turn cynical. That is like the current of our culture. Maybe it's just like the current of our kind of messed up, broken hearts. Uh, But anyway, she says to deal with cynicism uh, with other people, but also with yourself, she says, number one, stay clear and kind. And that's, that's I think, has more to do with like, dealing with cynicism in other people. So you're never going to argue a cynic out of their cynicism. They will laugh at you. That's how it works, right? They will create intellectual defenses and they will laugh at your reasons uh, that you're giving to look on the bright side or to be encouraged or just remember that God loves you, right? Like there's, there's, a, there's a defense mechanism. And so to deal with the arguments is not dealing with the heart. Like the heart of it is they've been hurt and they feel shame. And so what they need is not an argument. They need kindness. If your spouse is turning toward negativity, if your friend is turning toward negativity, like, you're not going to argue them out of it. What they need is kindness. That's That's what caused the cynicism in the first place. Number two, practice the courage to say what you mean and mean what you say, right? So this is about us. It's just a a realization that cynicism and sarcasm often mask, this is what's going on inside of you, anger, fear, feelings of inadequacy, and even despair. But number three, if what's under cynicism and sarcasm is despair, the antidote is cultivating hope. And hope isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling. It's a cognitive emotional process that has three parts. The three parts are goal, pathway, and agency. In other words, you need to know where you're headed, you need to know how you're getting there, and you need to believe in agency. There's like, she would say, I have what it takes to accomplish or to get to where I'm going. Uh, I don't think Brené Brown uh, necessarily sees all of reality in this. Because she always roots the, the agency in yourself and in believing in yourself. And, and I think that what we really need to do is to root that agency in God. So look at Sarah as an example. She knew what the vision was. You know, I'm going to have children, at least a child, to pass on this promise of God. The pathway is to get pregnant. But when she looks at herself, she thinks, I can't. Look at me. I'm old and I'm barren. Like I haven't had... I haven't had a kid up to now. What makes anyone think that I could have a kid past now? But what God does is God comes and reminds her that she is not the agent. And you almost, you kind of see here how God chooses to use people who are imperfect because there's a miracle in the reality that a 90-year-old woman had a baby. And so Sarah can't take credit for this, you know, this fertility. God comes and says, don't you know that the Lord, like God, this is God's personal name, didn't you know that God can do anything? Like God can accomplish this for you and your life. So how does that look for us as Christians in this, uh, in this world? So I want to actually like take this out and zoom it into the big picture. And to do that, I want to read from Galatians. You know, I'm just going to look on the screen. Galatians 4 verse 26. Uh, this is Paul saying, I didn't know this was in the Bible. I read it a couple times, but I guess I missed over this. Sarah represents the heavenly Jerusalem, and she is our mother. The heavenly Jerusalem is a rich metaphor for our ultimate future with Jesus. If you read the last couple chapters of the Bible, there's some rich imagery around what that city looks like. It's a picture of God's city crashing into earth. And so what God desires is carried out perfectly in the world, which means there's no more pain, there's no more death, there's no more suffering, and like love reigns supreme. It's a picture of heaven. And so, I mean, first of all, to say like Sarah is our like represents heaven to us is is like a great honor. Like there, there's no higher honor than to say, Sarah is the new Jerusalem, metaphorically, and that she is our mother, like the mother of all Christians. But why would Paul use Sarah as the example? Well, it's because of the hope that comes because of God's action. It's because we need not just happy thoughts, we need someone to come and change our cynical laughter into joyous laughter. And I think... The the place we need to look is God's promised future. Now, of course, uh, there's all sorts of things that happen day to day that we need hope for as well. But the thing that you'll notice is what has more to do with how you behave or your outlook on the present. It, I mean, it, it has more to do with the future than with the past. You see this in people who have had crummy past but believe in a better future. Like they they contribute, they're motivated. People who have had great pasts but believe in a crummy future, they're not motivated, you know, they, they turn cynical, they, they complain, they're bitter, they're angry. Like, do you know, is this, this is I think just the experience. Like I don't need to prove this point. The future or a change in belief in your future transforms the way that you are in the present more than the hurt or the bad experiences you had in your past. I'm not saying that those aren't important, but it's actually, a, it's an envisioned future. And C.S. Lewis makes this point. Again, I'm just gonna use C.S. Lewis like every week, if I can, every time there's an opportunity because it's like a little plug for that summer reading series that we're doing. Um, but he says about hope. Hope is looking forward to the eternal world, as some modern people think, or uh, yeah, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. It's not that. It's not escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Is that what it says up there? Oh yeah, There's, I missed the knot. Okay, Christian hope is the continual looking forward to the eternal world. It is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. That's like a long sentence. That's why I got lost in the middle. Christians are meant to hope. That is what he is saying. It is not a form of escapism. Next slide. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And so I wanna wanna challenge you or invite you to think about the places where you have been drawn towards cynicism. Maybe it is that you're cynical about the political process, the state of politics as we know it. Maybe you're cynical about the church. Maybe you're cynical about men. Maybe you're cynical about the next generation. Cynicism is looking for entryways into your heart. And the only real way to combat that is to stand in the promises of God for your future, to not put your hope, right? This is where we go wrong. We put our hope in politics, to do things that politics can't do for us. We think the politicians will make us happy you know, the, the people who wrote the Constitution, they were smart. They didn't, give, they didn't promise that you would be happy. They said that you could pursue it, not that you would achieve it. So don't look to the government for happiness. The, the writers of the Constitution knew that wasn't going to happen. Don't look to, you know, technology for relationship. It can't give you that. Like, the things that matter most come to us in Jesus' love for you and are are completed, are made perfect in the promise of heaven or that new Jerusalem. And so let's pray. God, we ask that you would uh, surgically right now for some of the people who are, are just plagued with cynicism, like perform an extraction but we know that like extraction isn't enough we actually need healing we need cynicism to be replaced with something we need hope and so i would say anybody in this room who wants hope just kind of symbolically open your hands right now holy spirit pour out your hope Fill them with your hope. Jesus, come and meet them where they are. Heal the past hurts so that they can be healers. Give them the kind of hope so that they can bring hope to others. Show them your grace. And show them your love. We pray this in... Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.